0: us pray. <clears throat> uh, Lord, that line right there, that, that is why we're here. Um, you deserve all glory, Jesus Christ uh, and God who sent him. Uh, Lord, thank you for your plan of saving us from our sin that we just rehearsed in this song, that even though we were enslaved to sin, every one of us in this world, um, uh, a, a twisting of our own hearts back in toward itself, um, that uh, in pride uh, and self-serving, Lord, that you sent Jesus into the world um, to make atonement for that sin, to be, become a man like us and live a sinless life that we owed you and have all failed um, and died on the cross in our place. And we thank you for your resurrection, Um, That we celebrated again two weeks ago and continue to celebrate every week that um, God raised you from the dead. Uh, Jesus, because the grave had no hold on you. We thank you that now because of this, uh, we can turn um, to you and get forgiveness of sin and your spirit's help to live in a way that pleases you, brings delight in you, uh, in you and actually can be a part of your work in the world like this. Thank you, too. I just want to thank you again for joining Jeremy. I pray that uh, today, even as they've worshipped uh, together on the Lord's Day ahead of us, that their hearts would be encouraged um, by the same hope that we have. Uh, Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word um, that, again, what, we're, what we encounter here in, in the end would result in glory uh, being given to Christ uh, in what Christ has done for us, and, and uh, glory to Christ through the lives that uh, this gospel produces. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just w- w- one back step. I want to clarify, as, as Jordan was standing here, this cool little code in here. We actually won't send you a CD. We're much more hip than that. We'll send you a, a cassette. No, I'm just kidding. No, we will actually. If you if you fill this out, you'll get an email immediately when you get home, and uh, there'll be a link, and you could download our last songs, of Grace album, right there, which is pretty cool. So, or if you, your phone isn't quite as fancy to scan that that little URL right there, if you type that in, you could just fill out. It's a, a quick. I'm new here form, but we'd love to hear from you. All right, well, I'm Kenny. I'm one of our elders here at Grace. Uh, If uh, you are recent uh, here in attendance, um, what you might not know is that from week to week, we don't have the same person preaching. I'm one of a team of our elders here at Grace, and we share that preaching. Um, And I'm up today, and we're in 1 Peter, if you would turn there. It's a short little book, a letter in in the New Testament. So if you're looking for that, the last book of the Bible is Revelation. Go there and just start backing up a few, and you'll find 1 Peter. And we're in chapter 3. As you're turning there, just a reminder that this is a letter. It's a letter written by Peter, the same Peter who was one of the 12 disciples. Uh, the same Peter who uh, spent three years after Jesus said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of man. And he did and he followed and, and heard Jesus teach and saw Jesus perform signs and wonders that no one could explain. And eventually realized that this Jesus was no ordinary man, but was God who had become a man to save us. This Peter was the, a witness to the, uh, to the death of Jesus, was a witness to the burial of Jesus and was witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And that changed everything for Peter and the other 12. Uh, and Jesus called them to be the first uh, among millions now who have gone through the world sharing this message that because of what Jesus did, our sin can be forgiven and we can be right with God. Um, and this letter Peter wrote uh, to circulate among churches back in his day to encourage churches because these little churches um, quickly found themselves and, and who they worshiped and how they lived at odds with the surrounding culture or in contrast to the surrounding culture, uh, and in varying degrees, it was bringing on um, opposition and persecution, and he wanted to encourage these churches to stay the course and continue to, to live in ways that bring all glory to Christ, like we just sang. So that's what this letter is about, and we are diving in here. We're chapter 3, so if you're visiting with us, you're sort of mid-course, and it's going to feel like that as we jump in reading here. It starts with likewise, which means he's been talking about something just prior to this that he's continuing here, so we'll get to that. But here we are, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Let me read our text and then have a couple of questions I want us to think about before we even uh, dive into the, to the actual content of these verses. Let me read Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, well, one of my responsibilities at Grace for La Mirada and Fullerton uh, this last year or so is to be uh, to schedule all of our preaching. So, keeping our, our calendar, deciding what we're preaching on, and, and slotting who preaches on what Sundays, and making sure that works with everyone's schedule. And about two months ago, as I was working on this, I worked really hard not to preach on this Sunday. <laughs> But it, but it wasn't because of this text, actually. It really wasn't. Uh, so last Sunday, I preached at La Mirada, April 3rd. And for six months, I'd been planning with Scott and my brother Seth and Stuart Massey, who attend here, and some other Grace guys, to run in this 200-mile relay race called Ragnar uh, that went from Huntington Beach to San Diego. And it was April 1st and 2nd, and I was doing everything I could not to have to preach the very next day with shot legs and, and sleep uh, deprivation. And so for weeks, I was trying to line up other guys. And one by one by one, Uh, No one could do it. They had commitments and stuff. And as it turns out, the Lord just decided to take me out of that race. And the day before, I threw my back out. And so Scott, bless his heart, had to run one of my legs for me. And and he's still alive. So thank you. And I have a great object lesson for Jesus um, winning my reward. Uh, I have a medal now in my office that I could not have run for the life of me. But I have because Scott ran the race for me, just like Jesus ran the race for us. Anyway, I digress. So anyway, but in, so in God's timing, he must have realized I was going to need more time to prepare to preach than I was going to have. So I was trying to get different guys, And finally, the last guy, you know, called me back and said, I just I can't make it work. And I'm like, "Okay, Lord, some reason you want me to preach on this text, on this passage. And so, uh, Lord, sh- show me why you want me to preach on this. And I'm confident of this at very least. God wanted me to preach on this passage for the sake of my own marriage. Sobering for a couple of weeks to, to be immersed in thinking about how God calls my wife, Betsy, to love me and how God calls me to love her. Um, and I'm reminded of what a treasure I have and what a, a beautiful thing marriage is. Thankful for it uh, and sobered and, 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 and convicted about wanting to love her in a way uh, that makes her side of this Easy and a delight. So for very, very least, the Lord was saying, you need to work on uh, your marriage. But hopefully God has plans for for you in this as well. Two questions before we dive into the verses. The first one is this. uh, Who needs to hear this? Who needs these seven verses? Number one, start with the most obvious. If you are a wife or a husband, uh, this is relevant to you immediately. Um, Peter is saying here that even though what Paul says in Galatians is true, that there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, that our relationship to God through Christ um, makes us on equal footing, male and female, husband and wife in Christ. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that there aren't distinct roles um, in marriage that God still intends Um, So if you are a wife or a husband, um, Peter is calling each of you in unique ways to love your spouse and put them first and make yourself second in some distinct ways that we need to be reminded of this morning and encouraged by. So that's the obvious one. Number two, if you have a wife or husband, you also need to hear this. And I know that's the same people. But what I mean by that is um, that you don't just need to hear the verses that are addressed to you, husbands and wives. So don't check out, guys, husbands, until verse 7. But husbands need to, like me, need a fresh reminder. What exactly is this that God is calling your wife to in loving you uniquely in this relationship? Are you living with her according to knowledge, as Peter's going to ask here? Are you living with her in a way and loving her in a way that would make that a delight and not a burden? And and, and similarly, wives, understanding what God calls your husband to in loving you and leading in this relationship and laying down his life for you. um, Do you understand that so that you might encourage and fan into flame the steps that he takes in that direction and encourage that to grow uh, as he uh, and and I uh, try feebly step by step to do that? Okay, so those are the obvious ones. What about everyone else? If you are not a husband or wife or you don't have a husband or wife, should you have just passed this week, just listen to a podcast from another week or something uh, and checked out. I don't think so. Peter wrote this letter. It would have been read just like this, the whole thing at one sitting with churches all gathered. There's no notes at chapter three. Say, go ahead and dismiss everyone who's not married for the next five minutes to go take five and, and then we'll you know, ring a bell and they can come back in at the next part. Um, there, there's, an, there's, there's edification value here uh, for, for a number of reasons. Let me give you a few reasons, other reasons why you might need to hear this. Number one, if you're part of this church, you know husbands or wives. You are in relationship, you're brothers and sisters in Christ with married men and married women. Maybe that's through grace group or other small group uh, contexts or uh, men. You go to band of brothers and you meet every month and sit and, and talk and pray with other men who are married. And, and same with women, with ladies tea and women's ministry. I was thinking about uh, what it means to be part of the, the church. Uh, and for us to care about things and relationships even that we're not in. So Hebrews 10.23 says, Church, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's on all of us. That's a community project here. And so as Peter here is talking uniquely to husbands and wives and saying, here are some ways, wives and husbands, you are to love and work good for your spouse. Church, we ought to be listening in. How are we going to give good godly counsel and and good accountability um, and ask good questions to married friends, to to encourage them to be loving their spouses in the ways that God calls them to and praying thoughtfully? Uh, If we don't understand first, what is marriage and what is God's intentions for it? Understanding marriage is, is vital if we're going to consider then how do we stir one another up to love and good works? Another reason we need to hear this, uh, or you might need to hear this, is you desire to be a husband or a wife, that you desire to be married. That's something you aspire to. Um, Peter's describing, first of all here, what this thing is that you are aspiring to, that you desire. What what, What are you desiring if you desire to be a wife? And what are you desiring if you desire to be a husband? And he's helping you think about who are you looking for? This should inform who you are drawn to, who you are attracted to. The thought as you read this and you think, um, is this man demonstrating um, a growing maturity not sinlessness. You're not going to find anyone who's perfect, husband or wife, anyone. You're not going to find anyone who will make this easy all the time. But is this man or is this woman someone who demonstrates a sort of a character and a Christian maturity and maturing that, that shows signs that I can entrust myself to this person. I can lay down my life for this person. Another reason this is an important passage is if you want to know God better. Peter mentions something in here that, that in God's sight is very precious. Whenever the Bible says something, points something out and says, you know how God feels about that? He sees that as very costly, very valuable, of high worth. That's precious to God. That teaches us something about the character of God, about what He loves, what brings honor to Him, doesn't it? So if there's something God says, this is precious to me, and we don't see it as precious, we need to say, okay, God, help me understand who you are and what this is and what's precious about this so that I can know you better. On the flip side, in verse 7, Peter mentions a warning here that husbands, for example, who fail to live with their wives in an understanding way and sort of live with their wives ignorantly like this, not showing honor, he says that might hinder your prayers, few verses later in, in verse 12, I think Peter says something more about what he has in mind there. Uh, he quotes from the Old Testament, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So even in marriage here, Peter's talking about something that even applies more broadly. And that is God and his discipline will potentially say, you know what, if you're gonna live with your wife in that way, in an openly ignorant and stubborn and unloving way, but then turn to me and and, and ask me to to, to love and live with you in an understanding way, my ears aren't open to that prayer. That's That's a sobering warning, isn't it? tells us something about the character of God and what does it mean to, to have communion with him. Uh, last reason that struck me is that if you need a reminder of the gospel to be refreshed, uh, a reminder of, of the gospel and how Jesus saves us, um, marriage, in part, God has intended to have intentional echoes of the way that Jesus has saved us. So, for example... Uh, In a marriage, um, the self-sacrificial leadership of Jesus in laying down his life for his bride to nourish and cherish and beautify is to find an echo in marriage through husbands, albeit imperfectly. But also, I think, in wives, there should be an echo of Jesus as well. Jesus, who entrusted himself to his heavenly father, and submitted His will to the will of the Father as an equal, but nevertheless partnering together to bring about together with the Father our redemption. And and this is to find an echo in part in the marriage relationship both Jesus' loving leadership and also his His loving submission to the Father. Trinitarian love is is designed to show up in a way in in the marriage relationship, I think. And so to to think about what God says about marriage is to help us think about what God says about the gospel and what God says about Jesus um, through whom the gospel um, is, is brought to us. So hopefully no one is thinking they shouldn't have come this morning and that this doesn't apply to them. So second question here, I think in the context is, why is Peter so focused on submission? Because this is the third time he's gone there, if you've been keeping score. Look at 2.13. He started here by talking to Christians in terms of the, being citizens uh, of a nation under a government. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor or the governors, etc., Then in verse 18, he he turns to another possible relationship some Christians might be in, servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And he talks more about that and how in some ways, servants, even with unjust masters, can follow their Lord Jesus, who also entrusted himself uh, to his creator, meanwhile suffering unjustly. And so he talks some about submission in that relationship. And here's the third time in chapter three, verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So there's that word again, subject. It's going to look very differently in this relationship as it does in citizens with governments and servants with masters. But the words here again, why is Peter this on his mind? Well, back up here. I think this is where Peter got off on this train of thought in chapter two, verse nine. Look there. Chapter two, verse nine was sort of this crescendo up to to that point in the letter. And what he was saying from the beginning to Christians is, listen, even though your external circumstances might look very much like (laughs) you are uh, exiles and outsiders and aliens and, and struggling, you are actually God's elect. You are his chosen ones. You're precious to him. He sent his son Jesus to shed his precious blood to cover your sin. And you've been born again to a living hope so that you could be forgiven and adopted and made heirs together with Jesus of everything and not just as individual Christians, but like bricks in a building, like living stones, part of a people who, among whom God dwells, And you, like living stones, are being built up into this people. And verse 9 is this crescendo. Why is God building this people? So that this people for God's possession would proclaim the excellencies of the God who called them out of darkness into light. Or like we sang, took us out of slavery and made us free and sons and heirs. That we as the church would be primarily a proclaimer of the glory of God and of the glory of the gospel. That's what Peter really cares about, that the gospel shines uh, through his church. And not just verbally, he said back in chapter one, verse 25, that the, the gospel is the word, the good news preached. But here, when he says, proclaim the excellencies in verse 12, he jumps right to conduct. He says, well, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's saying, I want the church to make visible by the way they live their lives, the inner hope that they have in the gospel, right? So we have an inner hope because of the gospel, but you can't see that until you act upon it and it leads you to act in certain ways. And then that conduct can actually draw attention by onlookers to the God uh, that you serve and who saved you, right? And then in verse 13, he gets more specific, I think, and he begins talking about one particular way that Christians can magnify God and the gospel and make their living hope very visible by their conduct, and that is through submission and the way that they interact with varying, various authorities. Christians aren't just called to submit just wives in a marriage, but in all sorts of ways, Christians are called to submit. We've seen a couple of them already. The government, whether it's evil or good or somewhere in between, um, servants with masters later on, it's going to talk about in the church. Church, submit to the elders in that church. God has called leaders uh, to lead in the church and so follow. And so submission is something uniquely that is an opportunity to magnify where your hope ultimately is. And so here, after saying citizens can magnify God in the way that they live uh, as citizens and servants can magnify God and display their hope in Him and their trust in Him, even by um, being faithful and having integrity and serving masters who are harsh. Then he turns to wives and husbands notice. They both get mentioned here. I don't know if you noticed that, but with uh, be subject to human institutions, he doesn't turn and say, and emperors, um, in case any of you are present, this is what I call you to, or servants, he doesn't turn to masters. That was a delayed, that was a time release joke there, um, servants and masters. But here he gets to this marriage relationship and he says, wives be subject and likewise husbands. And he has something to say to husbands as well. And I think that's because in, uh, even though there are distinct ways, in marriage, husbands and wives are each called to make themselves second, put each other first, and by doing so, magnify God in the gospel. So that's my outline is this. How are husbands and wives called to magnify God? By putting each other first in, in their marriage Peter says there's some distinctions here and he starts with wives. He says, wives, this is going to look like shining submission. I chose the word shining because of a few reasons in here. Uh, first one is this, is that uh, Peter mentions two different witnesses to wives who love their husbands in this way. First, he says, some husbands who are unbelievers, who, who, who don't obey the word that their wives do, They might be one without a word when they see the conduct of their wives, see their respectful, pure conduct. So what Peter's talking about here, the submission is something that he's, he is intended to visibly shine and be beautiful in such a way that it potentially could draw an unbelieving husband to their God. The second witness is in verse four, it's God himself that this submission is something that before the eyes of God is very precious. That he looks at this hidden person of the heart when it's expressed in this way, and God looks upon it, and it's very precious in his sight. It delights him. I also say shining because of the word adorning in verse 3 uh, and 4. Um, Peter talks about some this submission of wives uh, in terms of beautification, that to seek to love your husband this way is a form of self-beautification, the way he puts it. And he sets up a contrast that we don't want to take overly literal, you know. So in other words, it doesn't mean, hey, wives, just wear a potato sack and let your hair be a rat's nest and give away all your jewelry and you know. But he makes a contrast and he says basically: take much more care and concern to cultivate this inner person of the heart and this beauty that's imperishable, that wrinkles can't affect and can't tarnish and and go out of date-like clothing and jewelry, put more effort into into growing and, and cultivating this hidden person of the heart than you do into external beauty that'll fade. And so it's a shining submission. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relation to relating to your husband in a way that shines before God and before others. And he describes it with a few, in a few ways. First of all, he, he says it's being subject to your own husbands, verse one. By the way, it's good to underline your own husband here. He's being specific here. He's not saying, wives, be subject to everybody's husbands. Wives, be subject to all men in this way. He's talking in the context of this relationship. Wives, with the man that you made vows to until death do you part. With that man, first of all. So that's a good qualification. But then he says, be subject. It means follow. It means yield to the authority to, to follow the lead of. I read a lot of explanations, or definitions, sort of biblical definitions of submission the last couple of weeks. Here's one I really like. I want, I want to read the whole thing here. It's got a few elements that I, I like. He says, it's the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership. Not that he just deserves by right, but that God has called him to take initiative and to, to carry out. So it assumes, first of all, that God has said, Husbands, don't you just sit by passively. I want you to lead in a way that reflects Christ's love for the church. So there's an assumption there already. And so it's a divine calling to honor and affirm that leadership, not to try to subvert it or work against it or or take its place. Um, he He goes on, he says, And to help him carry it out through according to her gifts. And it's more that he says it's a disposition to follow and an inclination to yield to that leadership. Uh, What I like about adding those words into the definition, an inclination and a disposition, is this, as we're going to see in a minute, as we clarify, what does submission not mean in a marriage? There are times when biblically, I think Peter would say, wives, you are not to follow your husband there. Certainly in unbelief or in sin, If your husband's leading you to a decision that is morally wrong or goes against conscience to you, it feels like this would be to sin. And there's a pressuring there. Even where there's a line where husbands would be leading in a way that a wife should say, I can't follow there. I love that it says a disposition and an inclination. That This submission even involves an attitude that could be expressed to a husband that was as bonehead as that and could say, communicate, My desire is to follow you and to affirm your leadership, but I can't follow you there. But I want to and even appeal to a husband to lead in such a way that I can actually follow. So I like that part. It's a disposition, a desire to see a husband lead that way, even when a husband isn't. And then he says, it's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and you lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you're passive and I have to make sure the family works. I think I would add to that. uh, It also says, uh, I don't think you husbands flourish um, when you are passive and I have to make the family work. There's something in this that would say, part of, I want to see stirred up in you is this leadership that God's called you to. Like another author also pointed this out, this is important. An often overlooked feature of this uh, command to submission for wives is that it's addressed to wives, not husbands. Contrary um, uh, to, think, for example, Islam, that would sort of call men to, to make sure that that happens, the Bible actually calls wives to voluntarily surrender that prerogative. So, husbands, biblical submission isn't a right to be taken, it's a gift, actually. That your wife gives. And it's actually in part for your edification, to help you grow in the way that God wants you to grow. So here's the problem in our culture, surrounding, prevailing culture, um, this idea is seen as ugly, backwards, um, archaic, outdated, and yet God here says, very precious. So a good question to ask is, if I don't see something as precious as God sees as precious, why is that? I think a few reasons could could be. Number one, it could be possible that God sees this as precious, but you don't, because your understanding of this is is incorrect. You're importing into this idea of submission things that God would say, no, that's not part of biblical submission, or that's an abuse of that on the husband's part, or uh, a distortion of that on the wife's part. And so clarification might make you go, no, no, that is precious. Um, I was was looking at something different. A second possibility is that you might understand God's (laughs) definition of submission, and you just don't like it. This is certainly possible in all sorts of ways, isn't it? As a Christian, aren't there all sorts of ways that God says that sort of conduct right there is precious to me and honors me, but when I'm called to do it, I don't feel it's very precious. I think of loving enemies, for example. We're called in following Christ to love our enemies, pray for those who would do harm to us, show mercy. And that might look very precious to us at a distance when someone else does it. But when I'm called to love that enemy and show mercy to that person in particular in the heart, I can say, yeah, that doesn't feel very precious to me, God. And the same, I think, is true in any form of submission. In some ways, we can struggle in part because submission involves yielding. Submission involves humbling. Submission involves uh, chafes against pride. And so it could be in part that we need to say, Lord, help me to see something as precious as you do um, by, 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 by softening my heart. A third reason that this might not seem precious to you specifically right now, in particular as a wife, is because your husband makes this difficult. I'm implicated here. It's pretty sobering. Last Sunday, actually, Betsy and my kids, we came, they came over to La Mirada when I was preaching over there. in third service, she was sitting right over there. It is a sobering thing to talk about these things. Meanwhile, my wife sit there and say, let me tell you all how... how how he makes this difficult, right? Or not so precious in my sight. So husbands, we need to hear this. That's part of why we need to hear these, these opening verses here is that we can make this difficult. And Peter has words for us here before we're done. Uh, but I want to go back to this, this first thing about clarifying what submission means and what it doesn't mean. Maybe this is your assumption, but just in case, uh, some of these come from uh, another pastor, a a commentator, David Helm, his commentary on 1 Peter, and I added a couple here, but a few that he says. First of all, um, biblical submission doesn't mean if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should do so. This passage is case in point. He's actually assuming that on the most important fundamental question of life, these wives have gotten it right, and some of their husbands have totally missed it. And he's not saying to them, just follow whatever your husband believes. He's actually saying, here, let me tell you how to win them to the kingdom through your conduct and through being a wife. So it doesn't mean you believe whatever your husband believes. It doesn't mean if your husband asks you to sin, like I said before, or act against conscience, that you just do that. You just follow. Um, if he wants to lead in a family decision that you say, no, that's, that's wrong. That's unbiblical. Um, here, I have to go with my God over you. It doesn't mean that you always agree with them or you never present a different view. Heavens, what a terrible place I'd be in if if, if we only had to go on my views, in decisions, in my family. Um, Husbands, you are married to an independent mental thinking center with wisdom and thoughts and perspective and opinions, and that is to be part of marriage relationship and and decisions. And so biblical submission doesn't mean the husband makes the decisions and the rest of the family lives with them. So husbands, if that's your idea, uh, you need to check that. That's not what the Bible means by that. Um, It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to influence your husband. I, I, I want Betsy to help me grow in Christ to encourage that. In fact, Peter here is talking about ways that wives can actually n- nurture and, and help their husbands grow m- mature in Christ. First come to Christ, but also certainly mature in Christ. He also adds, if it doesn't mean if he's unfaithful to you, you're left without biblical recourse. That it means just, just be silent and, and take it. He says, it doesn't mean if he abuses you physically or through incessant verbal humiliation, that you must do nothing and just accept the daily cruelty of that. That's a distortion of an idea that would say, you just follow, you keep your mouth, you just be loyal and faithful and don't, don't share that. In fact, I would say here at Grace, your husband, a part of this church, um, is submitting himself to the leadership of this church. And if that would be true in your marriage, um, that you're not called to just be silent and say nothing, but actually to, br- to bring others in if your husband won't hear it. and Even bring that to our elders. The last one I would add, I, I would hope it would go without saying, but but is it doesn't imply in any way that asymmetry in roles, meaning a distinction in roles and a following of leadership, in any way means superior, inferior, that it has anything to do with worth or value or equality. Both create as created in the image of God, or equality in terms of salvation and precious to God through Christ, it has nothing to do with this. It can't because the Bible says that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, sub himself to God the Father. None of us would say, well, yeah, that makes Jesus inferior in some way. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father in deity, worthy to be worshipped, all the attributes of God, nevertheless subjects himself to the Father, willingly and joyfully subordinate, partners with the Father together to accomplish this glorious thing of saving sinners. But he does so by following the will of the Father. So then Jesus comes and he talks like this. He says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. It's my joy to accomplish the purposes he has for me. Or then when he comes to the cross in the garden and he's struggling with fear about what he's about to experience, he prays, Father, not my will but yours. Jesus is showing a submission there actually to the Father all the while being equal in every way. So in a similar way in marriage as in the Trinity, there is an equality in being in value while there is a difference in roles. Those things don't equate. Difference in roles doesn't equate with inequality. Sorry, that's confusing to say. It doesn't equate inequality. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, A couple other things that Peter says about the submission is he 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 talks about respectful and pure conduct in verse two. When he says respectful, the word is in fear. And he says that a few times in the letter that we are, Christians are to conduct themselves in fear. And all the other times he's talking vertically. He's saying Christians are people who live with a reverence that God is God and ultimately I answer to him. And if I'm mindful of him, then I can follow him here. It's like in verse uh, chapter 117, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. So here, I think when Peter is talking about wives and, and their pure conduct in fear, I think he's talking about this purity, this marital faithfulness that he's calling even wives of unbelievers to continue to live out that's done, that that flows from fear of God. When they see your pure conduct in fear, your purity in in this relationship actually speaks to who you fear and who you revere. So purity, uh, I think pure conduct in fear. And then verse four, he, he says this, a gentle and quiet spirit. I think more clarification, gentle and quiet spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, I think it's helpful to think gentle does not mean weak. Gentleness isn't a weakness. Meek doesn't equal weak. Gentleness actually means um, uh, not pushy or insistent on one's rights or harsh. Um, Think about how a dad with big strong hands like Gerald would take out the splinter out of his young child's finger, right? with gentleness. It doesn't imply weakness. It means he's not going to just tear it out of there, right, and just make that thing happen. He's actually going to do that with with care, right, and finesse and not just make it happen. Well, gentleness means this. It's not pushy or demanding, um, but an an attitude of of sensitivity. Later in chapter 3, it says, Christians, when you give a defense for the hope that's in you, when you give a defense for the gospel, do it with gentleness, It doesn't mean do it with timidity and fear or weakness. It actually means do it with with a sensitivity and not just, I'm just going to make this thing happen. And so he's saying, wives, even in the way that you would seek to win unbelieving husbands or influence your husband, do it with gentleness. There's a spirit with which he's calling wives. And it goes hand in hand with quiet, a gentle and quiet spirit. Quiet doesn't mean silent. Notice he doesn't say uh, a gentle and quiet mouth. (laughs) He says it's a spirit, right? He's talking about an attitude, an inclination. Again, I think that goes hand in hand. I was trying to think of the opposite of this, and I was thinking back through examples in TV and movies over the years of husbands and wives who, who, who demonstrate. And, and the wife that came to mind when I thought of the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit was Mrs. Olson from Little House on the Prairie. Remember that? Is that too long ago that no one watches Little House anymore? Little House on the Prairie. Remember, she was married to Nell's. Right, And Nels was the shopkeeper. And he just sort of kind of was just generally this kind of cowering, silent. He just let her have the run of the place. And she just, and she was the opposite of gentle. She just got her way and made him do whatever she wanted. I mean, she literally just wore the pants all the time. It's the opposite, I think, of the spirit that Peter's talking about. It doesn't mean silent. It doesn't mean strong, but, but gentle and not looking to make this thing happen by force. And lastly, he says, uh, he he commends something in Sarah, the Sarah who was married to Abraham in Genesis. He says, she was one of those holy women who hoped in God, verse five, and adorned themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you're her children if you do good and you don't fear anything that's frightening. So what exactly is he commending about Sarah here? Here. Well, verse 5, first of all, he's commending her faith. He says the common denominator with these holy women like Sarah um, was that they first, they hoped in God. So Sarah was a woman to whom God had made covenant promises right along with Abraham, and she hoped in God. <laughs> And one of the expressions of that in verse six was she didn't fear anything that was frightening. It's the sort of courage that comes from if God is for me, who can be against me? If I fear God, then I don't have to fear man, even though man can do a lot to me. So Peter says Sarah was one of those sorts of women. And he says she expressed that hope that I can trust the promises of God, even here when some things seem frightening is the sort of hope that actually draws attention and magnifies God. And he says that she expressed it by following Abraham's lead and even calling him Lord, lowercase l. Doesn't mean he's my God. It means a term of um, honor and deference and, and, and even tenderness. So the question is, what exactly in Genesis does Peter have in mind? I think there's two options. Um, I'm not convinced which of these two options. One of them is a little bit harder for me to imagine Peter would be commending, but possibly. So number one, the, the 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 more easy option to me, Genesis 18 is the one place where Peter, or sorry, where uh, Genesis actually records Sarah calling Abraham Lord, and this is when it happened. After years and years of marriage, um, Abraham had been given a promise that God says, through you, your seed, I will give you a son and a nation. And through that nation, I'll bless all the families of the earth. He says, and I want you to pick up, pack up and leave to a far country with your wife, leave all of your family behind you and you go and you're going to live in tents and you're going to follow me and I'm going to make that happen. And after years and years of that, including dangers and at times where Abraham uh, did not act in her self-interest or in her interest first and put her at danger, as we'll see in a minute, Um, and barrenness continued and Sarah continued to wait for a child. Uh, One day, these two men, these angels, appear in Genesis 18 and they say, it's time. Sarah's going to conceive that thing that God promised is finally going to happen after years of waiting and years of Sarah following and in it together with this man. And in chapter 18, verse 12, she laughs to herself, as you might understand, kind of incredulously. She says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So one view would be that Peter is, is thinking of this time where Sarah, where she would have every right to not have an attitude toward Abraham, as still calling him my Lord, um, my husband, the one I follow, the one I trust, that even after years of difficulty and danger and discouragement um, and disappointment, that nevertheless, there's still this disposition toward her that's saying, I'm still in it with you. I'm still following your lead. So that's one option. Option two might be that he, he may have even in mind a couple of times in Genesis where Abraham leads in a way that puts Sarah at risk. Maybe you don't remember these stories, but twice as they're traveling in a foreign land and they're in tents and there's these other nations with kings like the Pharaoh or King Abimelech and Abraham gets worried because apparently Sarah was beautiful and he was afraid that these kings would see her and kill him so that they could take her as a wife. And so because technically they were also half brother and sister, Go into that, but um, <laughs> on a technicality, at least twice, maybe more, Genesis 20 alludes to maybe that was common as they were traveling. That was just the standard line. Was Abraham said, Hey, just leave that part about being a wife out. For my own, he put his own safety before his wife's. Now that feels a little problematic because that feels like Abraham saying, Hey, Sarah, you follow me in, in, in deceiving. Um, but it could be, because he says here, he talks about fearing God and, and then not fearing anything frightening that maybe Peter has in mind. says, can you believe this, this trust that Sarah had in the promises of God, that he was going to still bless through them? Um, and so even as they're still childless, but he's promised a child, and they're traveling in this dangerous circumstance, and my husband is asking me to, to, to put myself at risk for his own sake, and nevertheless, my trust is in God and these promises he's make, and I'm not going to fear anything frightening. Some might say as an extreme example of Peter commending this faith while maybe he might not commend um, following Abraham in the act of deception. That's the part that is a little difficult. I'm not sure which of those two. I think regardless, he is pointing at something here that is um, a, a trust in the promises of God such that even following a husband that blows it and gives good reason to say, I don't trust you. Nevertheless, an inclination to say, I still want to follow your lead. I want, I want to help. I'm with you. And Peter commends this and he says, wives, if you, if you follow Sarah in this, you're, you're her children. So what about husbands in this? How are husbands called to put their wives first? He says, in showing honor. That's what it boils down to in this verse. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, namely show honor. Living in an understanding way literally means live with your wives according to knowledge. Don't live ignorantly. There are things, husbands, that you need to know and not forget about your wives and then live accordingly to. And if you do, the way you will live is you will show honor. You will communicate verbally and through your conduct and your love for her, the value that you hold her, the esteem that you hold her with. And two things here that I see that he says that husbands, you need to know live according to knowledge of two things. Number one, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Your wife is a co-heir of eternity um, through Jesus, just like you are equally precious to God. Equal the uh, heir to an inheritance, uh, an imperishable inheritance that will never fade, never fail, kept in heaven for her, just like you, husbands. Don't forget that. And secondly, he says, don't forget that, and uh, that she is a weaker vessel in this relationship. That's, that's the one that make me, some of you are going, wait, Peter just put his foot in his mouth right there. Weaker how? I was thinking, you know, uh, my wife, Betsy, she is not physically stronger than me, but she's actually taller than me. And so there are certain shelves in our house that I have to ask her to get those things down for me. So we kind of have a yin and yang. She's not afraid of spiders, so she clears out the spiders so I can take the trash out, but I kill crickets. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there. But weaker, how? In what sense? Does he mean generally speaking, statistically, that more often than not, men are physically stronger than most women, even though there's exceptions, or somehow maybe emotional fortitude or or valor or courage? Well, that's arguable as well. I mean, pain threshold, that's certainly not true, considering what I've heard about childbirth. (laughs) So what exactly is weaker? that Peter has in mind. I actually think it's this. I don't think it's some sort of inherent quality that, generally speaking, women have that is always a little bit less than men. So men, you know, be careful because women are usually have less of this than you. I think it has everything to do with um, this relationship uh, and the, the voluntary uh, vulnerability that submission brings about. Think about it. When you entrust yourself to someone else's leadership, you are willingly making yourself weaker or, or more vulnerable, aren't you? Listen to this. This is one author, um, a book I'm reading called Engendered, a pastor named San Andreides." and he was talking about this, and I think this is a great point. He says, people submitting in a relationship are vulnerable. They're dependent on the careful, righteous stewardship of the one in authority. And wives have so allowed themselves to be contained in a sense. They've made themselves the weaker vessel understanding just how vulnerable someone is and surrendering prerogative to you should make you careful for her in your authority. As she lowers herself, you should raise her with attention. In fact, you should treat her as your treasure. I think the weakness Peter has in mind is the weakness that she has made herself when she made vows to you and said, I will follow you and trust you. He's saying, Peter's saying, husbands, you live according to that knowledge of that that this heir of the grace of life has made herself weaker by trusting you and your lead. So live wisely as a steward of that. Show honor. You know, I didn't want to assume to know. I just know exactly what would show honor to wives and exactly what it is about us that makes this hard to fo- us hard to follow or what makes it easy to follow. And so a couple weeks ago, I sent out an email to about two dozen women at Grace and Lamarada in Fullerton with a link to this little anonymous questionnaire, three questions I wanted to hear. And the questions were, um, how can a husband make it a joy for his wife to follow their lead? Second was, how does a husband make it difficult? And third was, how does your husband communicate or show honor, communicate to you that you're highly valued? I got so much good feedback. I had, to, I had to distill it down into these for the sake of time. But let me just read a few of these. Husbands, you might take note. I might make these available online later so guys can go and read them through later. But how can a husband make it a joy or a struggle? Uh, just combine these together because usually the answers were the flip side of, of the same coin. But uh, number one, um, he works at good communication. It doesn't just mean just listens uh, to his wife when she speaks, but seeks out his wife's counsel and thought and wisdom and opinions. And, and actually, as part of the initiative he takes to make sure that good communication is happening. Almost every wife answered saying in some way, when that happens, that engenders trust that we're in this together. Um, that there's humility there and not pride. Uh, number two, um, he makes decisions together with me. Um, leadership doesn't just make you, me, you mean you make decisions and we all live with them, but that we make decisions together. It goes hand in hand with good communication. Um, number three, this was huge. Uh, husbands, when you sh- clear, show that you clearly submit to God, That makes it easy to follow your lead. How do you do that? Well, in very simple ways, (laughs) these wives were saying, you know, being a man of the word, that you read the word, that you meditate on the word, that it's clear to your wife that you sit under God's word. Prayerfulness, seeing you pray, initiating in prayer, knowing that you are seeking God for your, for wisdom as well. And, and for your own sanctification engenders trust, Um, uh, the, showing that you submit to others like the elders of this church or the other men in your grace group or others in your lives shows your wife, I'm not married to a lone ranger. That he understands what it means to, to, to be under Christ and under authority. Um, another one, he shows that her safety is his concern, physical and emotional, proactively, uh, that brings trust. Um, he nurtures and enables, oh, sorry, I skipped one. He humbles himself toward her. Is that one on there? Mm -hmm. Letting small things go, avoiding petty grievances, not micromanaging, not insisting on his way all the time, not making every issue a hill to die on, humbling himself. Uh, He nurtures and enables her spiritual, physical, emotional health. A number of women said this, showing as much concern to guard time for her personal enrichment and growth as you do for your own personal enrichment and growth. That shows honor as well. Other obvious ones, he prays for me and prays with me. He's honest and faithful. He takes initiative. This was huge. Starting with to apologize and seek forgiveness. If you want to start by leading husbands, let's lead in that. Apologizing first, seeking forgiveness first, but taking initiative to pray, taking initiative to disciple children, taking initiative to make one-on-one time together. Just a few ways, uh, showing honor. He affirms me verbally, both to me and to others. Um, He talks about me. The way he talks about me to others communicates that that this isn't just a line that he really feels this way. He sees my worth. Um, He actively seeks to know me and know my heart. He shows his delight in me. He shows he enjoys time with me. And at the top of the list, he serves he serves me. He serves our family. My, f- my friend Brian Howard and and I've heard him many times say, "Husband's uh, one of your your titles in this relationship is chief servant. Mm-hmm. That's one of your one of your hats to wear. Chief servant, um, lead, start there. Lead by serving. So." Husbands and wives, we're out of time. This is what we're called to, to magnify God in this way. And church, we're called to be part of this. I was thinking the same way we do child dedications here where parents dedicate their children, but we acknowledge they don't do that in a vacuum. They do that surrounded by the church. In the same way, husbands and wives, you're not called to even do this alone. You're called to grow in this kind of love toward one another in the context of a church. So church, let's come alongside marriages in this church so that they would shine with this sort of glory. Um, And lastly, as we fall short, and we will, um, we have to be encouraged that Jesus isn't just our example, he's our righteousness in this. And what's going to empower us to continue to turn back toward one another and continue to show grace and forgiveness and patience and forbearance both to one another is as we turn back to Christ who laid down his life for us and submitted his will to the Father's, in every way so that his sacrifice was sufficient. And we keep coming back to that finished work and receiving it. And then we turn back toward each other and we we express it and we extend it to each other. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for that right there that we just said. Uh, Jesus, thank you that it, it is your food to do the will of your Father. And Father, that your will is to save and redeem sinners. Of whom we are some. Lord, we thank you for that grace in which we stand. Lord, I pray um, for husbands uh, in this congregation, in Grace La Mirada, um, that you would humble. Us and we would look to Jesus as our example and we would follow him in in dying to self and putting our wives first by laying down our lives in little ways and big ways. Lord, I pray for wives uh, in our church that as they look to you and trust themselves to you, that you would give them uh, the confidence in you and your sovereignty to follow husbands who are flawed uh, and to love them and encourage them. And Lord, I pray that marriages like this would actually stand in contrast in our surrounding culture and be something beautiful that actually draws people to wonder about this hope uh, that, that, that creates marriages like this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.